The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. There's a story that caught my eye, how the American dream turned into greed and inequality. It was authored by Alberto Gallo, portfolio manager and head of macro strategies at Algebra's Investments Limited in London. And he joins us now. Uh, Alberto, I thought this was a fascinating piece that you authored. The main point was uh, that monetary policies have sort of patched over a lot of sort of policy deficits and have allowed the weakest links to just pack on credit. Uh, at the expense of actually improving their place in society. Can you give us a sense of what has caused this and what has allowed this and what the potential consequences are? Good morning, Lisa. We have seen as investors in the market every day, every month in the last nine years, markets rising. But our struggle is that this wealth, this benefit hasn't reached the real economy. Uh, There's a big divide between Wall Street and Main Street. And in the end, it's negative for everyone because uh, we have seen that countries become more and more split uh, as the haves and the have-nots follow different political directions. Uh, And also geographically, you have areas which are very rich versus areas that are very poor, like the West and the East Coast versus the Midwest or in in the UK, London versus the rest of the country. So you have a very asset-rich but wage-poor recovery. You have countries that look very good in GDP terms but look very bad in the distribution of this wealth. Uh, the the trickle-down is, is, is an illusion, uh, and it, it generates political instability. Alberto, is this any different than it's always been? No, because we are at the end point of a very long debt super cycle. Uh, We started using credit to boost wealth with Nixon, uh, with Freddie Mae, Fannie Mac being created and privatized with the uh, idea that you could replace uh, productivity with a loan. The American dream um, would be possible. You could go to university, you can get uh, a student loan, you could get a mortgage uh, just because Uncle Sam would help you to get that. But then what happened is that all the tuition fees started to go up, all the house prices started to go up, and then you needed even more credit. So this started really with the baby boomer generation uh, which co- uh, and with the um, government subsidy to private debt, which generated a growth in debt to GDP, private debt to GDP, from 100% to 400%. So we used uh, $4 of um, debt, private debt, to generate, to to grow GDP. GDP um, grew, but private debt outgrew GDP by four times between the 60s and the 2008 crisis. The U.S. did it first, then it was Europe, then China in the last 10 years. The question is, now you're at the end of the game because interest rates are record low, 
You can't uh, lower interest rates even more. So central banks have bought $20 trillion of assets around the world. But this is effectively a debasement of money. Remember, money is credit, and credit means faith in the system. When you depreciate money by increasing the value of all the assets that money can buy, you implicitly depreciate faith in the financial system, which is why people today are looking at buying Bitcoin or buying gold or buying alternatives, because they think that will be even more QE. Uh, and their money will be less worth in the future. Uh, these are all shortcuts um, for what politicians should have done, investing in productivity, investing in education, giving everyone an opportunity. And we are, I'm, I'm sad today to see that politicians are cutting taxes for the rich rather than investing in productivity. Alberto, is this something you see as just a phenomenon of the last 50 years? Because, you know, post, uh, pre-World War II, there were very few opportunities for financial assistance from the government for just about anything. So I don't understand exactly where this American dream that you're describing comes from, except if you agree that it is an anomaly as a result of the victory of the United States after the Second World War. Because, I mean, if you go back 100 years, hardly anybody owned their own home. And now home ownership is, let's say, 60 percent, however we got here. And previously, you had to put down a, a down payment of about 50 percent. So whatever the financial rigmarole, I'm wondering, is it better now because we've appreciated people's lives and maybe depreciated the value of money at the same time? I, in my view, we need to think about what's the dream that we want. Is it about home ownership? Does home ownership make you happy? Uh, and today, many young people can't afford to buy a house, um, for example. Um, but maybe we have substituted the idea of a dream, the idea of home ownership, um, with, with happiness. While happiness is really linked to social mobility, to the chances you have in life uh, to end up in a better position than your parents. And data today shows that social mobility is actually lower in the U.S. than it is in uh, Scandinavia, for example, or in some other European countries that have a much less dynamic economy. And more importantly, um, even if you think that you may make it to get to the 1%, regardless of where you're born, um, do you want to be in a society where the 99% and in particular the bottom 40% cannot afford uh, food? You know, or in, in the U.K., uh, one-third of children live in poverty. Do you want to be the successful person in a society which is deeply divided and where nurses uh, are on, on food banks? Right. Uh, so this, this is, I think, the question we need to ask. Alberto, uh, just real quick, do you think that we're close to the breaking point at this, at this, uh, at this juncture? I think the, the question we're increasingly economists are asking themselves is um, about you know, some of the assumptions that we used in the last 20, 30 years. And uh, politicians, on the other hand, are capitalizing on this inequality and this uh, anger. Uh, paradoxically, the irony is that in the UK and the US, which are the most um, flexible economic systems, we have seen more political protest vote, more anti-establishment vote uh, with uh, you know, the Trump administration and Brexit. Uh, but these um, m political move, uh, movements sometimes are associated with um, policies that are, are long-term.
We have been waiting for General Electric's grand vision for how to proceed going forward after a pretty horrible year. And here to explain to us, uh, just to give us a review of what this plan looks like, is Brooke Sutherland, an M&A columnist for Bloomberg Gadfly. Brooke, thank you so much for joining us. I know today has been a crazy day for you. The stock market is responding to GE's plan with shares down more than 5%. You had written long ago, GE needs to cut its dividend, and it will. Is this plan still not enough? It's not. And I think, you know, when we initially saw the dividend cut this morning, I was thinking, okay, well, this is good. They're being dramatic about it. It was a 50% cut. That was what people were expecting and what they sort of needed to do. And then they came out with their slide deck with their 2018 numbers. And when you sort of drill down into what those numbers are, I, I think you have to wonder if they did go far enough or if maybe they should have cut the dividend more. And, you know, I think that's raising questions for people. I think the other thing is that Flannery promised this comprehensive review and we didn't really... Flannery, the new the chief new executive GE officer. CEO. Right. Yeah, sorry. Um, and, it, it, you know, he I believe him when he says he really drilled down through these businesses and looked at you know, units within businesses and everything. But what we got is kind of meh. I mean, like, you know, they're talking about getting rid of the industrial solutions business, which is great because they've already sold that. So then, you know, it's not new. And they're talking about lighting and transportation. And these are all sort of ancillary businesses that people were already expecting them to divest. So there's no real new, surprising, you know, grab your attention strategy here. And I think, you know, what that means is that we're just basically looking at a few years of a really tough slog at GE. They're committed to staying in markets like power. And power is not going to get better for at least a few years, even by GE's own admission. And, you know, some analysts worry it might not ever get better. It might just sort of trend down to this new normal of lower profitability. And I think, you know, if you were looking for radical change, this this is not it. What about the sell-off of the majority stake in uh, Baker Hughes? That's new-ish, but GE's prior management had communicated that a spinoff of that or some sort of divestiture was possible when they announced this deal. And that's something that investors have been speculating about basically ever since they decided that they were going to buy the Baker Hughes business and, and merge it in this combined entity. So, This is the first time GE has publicly said, yes, we're looking at that, but they've sort of indicated it's possible and and people have been expecting that to come. So, you know, I I think that is a good step, but that's also not the kind of thing that they're going to be able to do tomorrow. They own, you know, nearly 63% of this business. If you sold that all right now, you're not going to get a great price for it. Um, They're going to have to do it in stages. They probably have to wait a while for some of these commodity markets to recover. I'm wondering about whether they're going to have to cut the dividend more. I think that that is sort of the question. It, I you know I don't think we would expect anything you know in the coming months or anything like that. I think a lot of it's going to depend on how 2018 plays out. But when you look at those numbers, I I think it does make you nervous. And even after they cut it, they're still going to have one of the highest dividend payout ratios among high grade industrials. Talking about high grade, uh, I know that GE is on watch for downgrade, and you know that I'm obsessed with bonds. So I was looking <laughs> at their bond price action, and in fact, the market is treating them as though they have already been downgraded to uh, the lowest rung of investment grade. I have to think that's also a headwind because that raises their borrowing costs going forward. 
No, absolutely. And, you know, they're borrowing about $6 billion to front pay their pension. Um, and, you know, but you can't just keep going to the bond market to, to keep your business going. So Much evidence to the contrary. <laughs> well, <laughs> fair enough. But, um, yeah, you know, I... I I just think that there was so much hype for this event. And part of that is GE's own fault. I mean, the way that they set this up, this November date has been on the calendar since September. And then we had that horrible earnings report and they kept promising, no, wait, wait with us until we get to November. We're going to tell you this grand plan. And it's basically a reiteration with maybe a little bit more details here here and there of what they said on that third quarter earnings call. And so, you know, they sort of set themselves up for this where they really sort of promised something grand and, this is not this is not it. I mean, this is maybe the best that they can do. And maybe this is the what they think is right. But this is not the kind of thing that's going to be a magic fix for GE stock. Is there a uh, is there a thought that you have about the compensation uh, plan that has been announced? Because they seem to at least be putting their own money where their mouth is in terms of compensation is going to be in stock. No more of these long-term performance awards. Well, some of it's going to be in stock. Half so there's more of it than it was before. I think, you know, that's certainly going to be a good step. Um, a lot of investors were looking at these big payouts that, that former executives got in cash at times when the company was struggling, when, you know, its stock price was not delivering for investors. Um, so I think that certainly was a watch item. I think this is a good step. I do think you have to wonder if down the road there's going to be any sort of clawbacks of what was paid to former executives um, and if that should be Including at. Jeffrey Immelt, perhaps? Perhaps. I mean, you know, I, I don't think anything's been proposed yet, but I know this is something that investors I've talked to are wondering about and whether there's any grounds there um, or, you know, the head of the power business, Steve Bowles, he ran that business for a very long time and the John Flannery is basically saying it was his fault. It was poor execution. You know, power is a troubled market, but we were worse off than other people in the power market because of the way we handled that business. Well, investors seem to agree with you. The shares of GE are down more than 5% right now. Thanks very much for being with us. Brooke Sutherland is uh, M&A columnist, Bloomberg Gadfly, all things mergers and acquisitions. Much appreciated. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Not shopping on Alibaba Group Holdings site? Well, you're one of the few, not one of the many. The site generated more than $25 billion in sales in uh, China's uh, Singles Day, the uh, perhaps largest retail shopping day in the world. Here to tell us more about it is Shira Oviday, our technology columnist, our Bloomberg gadfly. And you can follow Shira on Twitter, at Shira Oviday, of course. Uh, Shira, thanks for coming into the studio. What is, uh, why is this so important? 
So Alibaba essentially created this fake shopping holiday, which they hold on November 11th every year. And it is basically sort of a celebration of shopping. And frankly, it's a marketing event for Alibaba. It's a way to draw attention to themselves from all across the globe from these enormous sums of sales that they do every year. Yeah, well, I mean, they're not alone, right? Because Amazon also has Cyber Monday. I mean, why not create an artificial holiday to to have people spend money on your site? Uh, The fact, though, that people spent $25.3 billion in sales is remarkable, no? I mean, can you put this into perspective? And is this just sort of a, a blow away as far as what people were expecting? It, it is a staggering number. And we should remember that uh, China is the largest um, market in the in the world, both for electronic commerce and for a number of people on the internet. So the numbers in China are always going to be big. Uh, but $25 billion is roughly equivalent to the total quarterly sales on eBay. So And that was done in a single day. So it's a lot. Uh, but it's also important to remember that Alibaba, unlike Amazon, to which it's frequently compared, doesn't make money directly from merchandise sales or doesn't make the majority of its money from merchandise sales. It makes money from uh, the merchants who advertise to make those sales on Alibaba. So the actual total daily sales, even on a marketing day, are not really that material to Alibaba. Do they make money in uh, in terms of margin on this kind of stuff? I mean, because it, you can have a artificial shopping day, cut the prices, you get great sales, and then you go back the other 300 and something days of the year and you realize, oh, though, you got to make up for that one bad day we had. Well, I think the better question is, do the merchants who sell right. their okay, stuff through you, Alibaba right, right. make As money? I, and I don't know. And I think it probably varies a lot by merchant. Um, again, because Alibaba is not selling products directly, it's more of a middleman for companies that are selling directly to consumers. It, their sales tend to be pretty profitable because they're, they're essentially making money from advertising, which is a high margin business for most uh, digital media companies or digital advertising companies. So, Shira, you know me really well. Well, and I imagine you were expecting me to ask about bonds because Alibaba <laughs> is selling some in the U.S. Lisa's asking me about bonds. I know, shocking. Stunning. I know, blow, blow your mind. Um, but, you know, Alibaba is selling $7 billion in U.S. Uh, dollar-denominated bonds, pricing at some point this week. This is the first sale of the company in the U.S. since 2015. Why? They just sold all this, like, material. They, I mean, they, they, why do they need money? I, I mean, I think the answer to any tech companies selling debt these days is because they can. Um, that we have seen the, the last few years. Um, now, seven, uh, the top seven companies in the public companies in the world by stock market value are all tech companies. Um, and, you know, investors see that and are willing to loan money to these companies because of their enormous size, profitability, and market power. Right. But, you know, if I could borrow money at a 4% rate or 4.5% rate, unless I'm going to use it for something, it's a drag, right? I mean, is it going to be uh, for refinancing debt? Is it that they're going to build out operations in the U.S.? Uh, is there a sense of what it's going to be going toward? Right. Well, it is true that Alibaba does have debt that they're trying to refinance. So certainly that's part of it. And they weren't very explicit about what they'll do with the money. But it's also true that Alibaba has been an acquisitive company. They invest a lot both in startups and in other companies around the world, not so much in the United States, but um, certainly in their home country and in places like the Middle East. And this is a company that has global ambitions. Again, maybe not U.S. ambitions, but um, global minus U.S. ambitions. You know, one of the things I noted about uh, this particular Singles Day is that 
Alibaba has rolled out a kind of artificial intelligence fashion aid as well as an artificial reality game. So in a variety of restaurants and I believe in uh, some select malls, you can go online, you play an artificial reality game, you earn coupons that are then valid for shopping on Alibaba's site. I'm wondering, is that something of a strategy that could be adopted in the United States? I mean, we don't see anything like that, this merging of online shopping, but with online game playing in the real world. So I think two things. One is that artificial intelligence and virtual reality, these are sort of buzzwords that every company is going to dabble in, um, and TBD, whether that will be an effective sales strategy. But uh, the second point is that I think Alibaba, to the extent that we have not really seen here in the U.S., they have been very savvy about uniting online and physical commerce. In, and again, in a way that even a company like a smart company like Amazon has not really done, including in groceries, by the way, where Alibaba is trying to sort of do that merging that Amazon is also trying to do of physical grocery shopping and digital grocery shopping. Of course, Alibaba also has the benefit of not having to deal with different security and privacy rules, and they can use all of their data to uh, monopolize uh, their client customer base. The, the Chinese technology giants have certain advantages that U.S. tech giants don't have. True. That's the diplomatic way of putting it. Shira Ovide, thank you so much for joining us. As always, Shira Ovide, technology columnist for Bloomberg Gadfly. Her stuff is great. Read it. Bloomberg.com slash Gadfly. Shares of Mattel soaring uh, up more than 20%. The stock of Hasbro up about 6.5%. Will these two toy makers come together? Well, let's bring in Sarah Halzak, our retail columnist, our Bloomberg gadfly. And she joins us from our Bloomberg 99.1 studios in Washington, D.C. Sarah, uh, what can you tell us about this uh, potential merger? Are we going to see uh, Hot Wheels uh, driving around the Monopoly board soon? Yeah, I think there's a good chance of it. And here's why. The toy industry is really in a place of big change right now. And I think Hasbro and Mattel could confront it better together. So one thing is that these companies are having to develop new core competencies. As we all know, play is getting more digital. They can't just make molded plastic blocks anymore. Um, They have to learn how to make YouTube videos, apps, and even get onto the big screen, as Hasbro has done uh, with the My Little Pony movie. So they have to learn how to do new things, and they can probably do that better together. Well, I'm just wondering, Sarah, why this didn't happen earlier, because the retail industry and even the toy industry has been under pressure for a while. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, but I think one thing we can consider is how the toy industry in particular has been looking. And in fact, 2016 and 2015 were blockbuster years for the industry. I think 2015 was its best year in over a decade. And you had a number of different things fueling that. It's a really strong year for movies, for example. That was when Star Wars first came back after about 10 years of no new films. You had properties like Shopkins. You had all sorts of things that were sort of a rising tide lifting all boats in the toy industry, sort of making things look good and, and making tough decisions like this look less urgent. Is this, uh, going, is this potential combination going to affect companies that license their products and their brands to the toy makers in order to make their products, whether it is a Disney or a movie maker? Yeah, I think that's still 
uh, kind of clarifying itself, to be honest, because um, it is true that they'll have some competing licenses. One will have a license for DC Comics, one will have a license for Marvel Comics, and sort of what uh, challenges that presents or what legal issues that presents if they were to get together, I think is still clarifying at this point. Do you have a sense of whether the Toys R Us bankruptcy kind of pushed this into high gear? fair to say that it probably did in in the sense that, uh, you know, Mattel really took a bath after its latest earnings report um, when sales just plummeted and they attributed about half of that decline in North America, 11% of that, uh, 11% of the 22% decline was because of the Toys R Us bankruptcy. And, uh, you know, Mattel just lost so much market value after that, that I think it suddenly became a much more attractive takeover target. What are some of the potential obstacles from an antitrust perspective other than those license deals? Yeah, simply just that um, these companies are so huge, right? Um, them and Lego are clearly the titans of the toy industry. Uh, so that said, though, the toy industry is more fragmented than we sometimes think. And I think even if you look at what's going to be hot this holiday season, you can see that. So Hatchimals are projected to be a huge seller. Well, those are made by Spin Master. They're not made by Hasbro or Mattel. Fingerlings are flying off shelves and are on eBay for much higher prices. Those are made by a small company called Wowie. So Shopkins are made by Moose Toys, a small company based in Australia. So there definitely will be some hurdles there since Hasbro and Mattel are so large, but the market is uh, a bit more broken up than you might expect. I'm feeling this pit of doom in my stomach because I haven't heard of some of those things and I know my children will be asking for them. So I'm concerned. Um, I'm looking at <laughs> oh Mattel. Oh my Mattel's... Good, gosh. Hatch- <laughs> you, don't, you don't know Hatchimals? I, I like, Hatchimals I like surprise? Giving them, I like giving them a, a brown a brown paper bag and telling them to make a puppet. Uh, but, but Sarah, <laughs> just, just lastly, you know, I'm just wondering, you know, Yes, a combination makes sense given the pressures, but will this materially change uh, the dynamic at all with the uh, competition from Amazon and uh, other sources? It might give them more uh, power, frankly, in dealing with Amazon to, you know, dictate pricing and that kind of thing. So it could be helpful in that way. And then I think the other thing to think about is just what this does for them in emerging markets. What we know is that uh, the growth, the majority of growth in the toy industry over the next five years is absolutely going to come not from North America, but from emerging markets. And the power that these companies combined would have in dealing with Alibaba, for example, uh, might be helpful to them in their growth mission as well. Sarah Halzak, thank you so much for joining us. Sarah Halzak is a retail columnist with Bloomberg Gadfly, and she joins us from our 991 studio in Washington, D.C. Just to give you a sense of how the shares are responding to this potential combination, Mattel shares up more than 20%. Hasbro shares up more than 6.5%. So certainly it's being cheered on the street. It's still unclear to me whether they could compete with an Amazon or even some local uh, kinds of alliances with some of these upstart, uh, you know, toy makers that have less overhead. I'm just saying, wowie fingerlings and hatchimals. You're going to hear a lot about them. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. 
Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.